You're listening to The Film File, your favorite pod show about film geeks, brought to you by Film Geeks. Roll on, episode 107. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm still Andy Meekin. That's good to know, because I thought otherwise you may or may not have been cloned. I'm glad you haven't, because that would have well, just got confusing. It's only a matter of time. Or that you're cloned, or anybody. <laughs> that I work out how to clone myself, and then I can send someone else to work and have some spare time to do all the other things that I try to do it with me wee week. I'm still thinking, I'm still considering what I would do if I was cloned. Because <laughs> there'd be two mouths to feed, wouldn't it, really? I, I'd send one of mine... To the library to do research on <laughs> cloning, on how to how to survive, how to survive. Because you've taken this very seriously since we mentioned it willy nilly as just a throwaway thing in in last week's show, and then you've just made you were telling me the other day you you figured it yep. all out. I, I've I figured I figured out what I'm hoping to be the thing that gets my name into a film because I I've come up with a plot a, a basic plot line which is taking similar themes that we've had in the past, but playing a new spin on them. And I've been fleshing it out more and more. By the time I've got all my details down, I will fire it all over to you so that you can see. But I'm not going to broadcast it out to all you pod listeners out there, because this is my idea. And the last time that I had an idea like this, three years later, someone made a film called Underworld that had exactly the same idea. So yeah, people are stealing these things from me. So um, <laughs> I'm not risking it this time. But uh, I've put the feelers out with basic nuggets with a couple of my colleagues at work, and they've all gone, wow, love it. So I'm going with this. I'm rolling with it. This could be it. Story by Andy Meakin. There you go. <laughs> Did I ever tell you the first script I ever wrote, which I sold, was uh, uh, based around a group of friends and I who were, were hanging out and going to a lot of clubs at that time and getting into, into trouble. And then a little old film came out called Swingers. Mm-hmm. And no, no way that John Favreau read my script, or I read John Favreau's script. But there were four major highlights in the film, so the the big sort of temple moments within that film, which were exactly the same as the script I'd written. It was just one of those things. It was no way that yeah. anybody knew. I wrote it while he was probably shooting the movie, and then the movie came out, and I'd got some initial interest off that off my draft of the script. And then Swingers came out, and it was practically the same kind of storyline. It was it was bizarre and weird and upsetting because he had spent I'd spent a year writing this project, yeah. And then Swingers came out with more or less exactly the same story with with four of the exact same beats in it. I mean, everything else, the setting, the the relationship between the friends was all different, but I had to go back and literally start from scratch. Uh, and take out what were the, the highlights. And clearly everybody remembers Swingers from from those highlight moments. It, it was really, really bizarre. God, imagine there might be an alternate universe somewhere where you directed Iron Man. Yeah, and I, you know, I've made Book of Boba Fett. <laughs> Hopefully you would have made it better. <laughs> I'm a bit drained today. It's the start of the half term in Sheffield because, you know, Sheffield likes to have its kids' holidays a different week to everyone else in the real world. And... We've been busy. We've been very busy this past couple of days. Well, some of the films that we're talking about today are going to be the, some of the reasons that you've got busy. So in today's show, what have we got? Well, Andy and I will both be reviewing Uncharted, 
And Andy will be talking about... Death on the Nile, which also opened this week, and landed on Netflix, Big Bug from Jean-Pierre Junet. We're going to be doing a deep dive this week into... The Steve McQueen starring 1950s drive-in theatre classic, The Blob. But before any of that, we're going to give you what we like to call a little bit of news. So we always kick off the news with talking about the latest in the box office figures. And I'm intrigued this week. So we've got a new Tom Holland film, which isn't Spider-Man. We've still got Spider-Man kicking around or swinging around. Depends how you want to look at it. Andy, what have we got? box office-wise, this week. Super Bowl weekend in the US tends to play quite light at the cinema as folk plan superb owl parties instead of venturing out to the big screen. And the weekend results kind of show that this week. Death on the Nile opened in the US reasonably with a $12.8 million taken, knocking the jackass team down a peg. Marry Me, the new J. Lo and Owen Wilson rom-com, scraped $7.9 million for third place. And Spider-Man still hanging on in fourth place, with the Liam Neeson action thriller Blacklight taking fifth. Here in the UK, however, we got to see Tom Holland as Nathan Drake a week earlier than our stateside cousins. And boy, did we take advantage of that. Going straight in at the top spot, Uncharted claims 4.7 million, knocking Sing 2 down to second place after two weeks at the top. Death on the Nile opened well in third with 1.9 million, whilst Belfast and Jackass took fourth and fifth place. Marry Me barely registered in the UK, scraping 685,000. Owen Wilson clearly not providing the wow factor for UK audiences. So that's box office out the way. So, you know, one factor that might factor into some of the releases that we're getting at the moment, the more serious releases, is the mentions in this year's Oscars that now the shortlist nominations have been drawn. Yeah, I, I, one of the things I want to talk about with the Oscars is uh, um, this this idea that No Way Home has been overlooked in the best film category. And, and you and I had a little back and forth on this one where I think we both agreed that while we, we enjoyed the film and, and like it an awful lot, we both don't see it as as best film category. Now, I've never understood this this mentality that people think that, you know, I really enjoyed this film, so this should be up for best picture. That's not how it works. And generally the categories, you know, the people who come up with the shortlist of the nominees are the professionals within the industry. Now, the best picture is pretty much everyone involved in the like decision-making is involved. But like the cinematography, it's cinematographers who decide on that. Um, sound engineering is the sound engineering. So it's the people who know what they're talking about. And the lineup for the best picture, I'm sorry, but I look at this and I think, well, what would I take out to put spy- a Spider-Man in film in there? And I wouldn't. I mean, we've got Belfast is in there. Beautiful film. Coda, which I caught the other day on TV. Well worth watching. That's on Apple TV. Don't look up. Drive My Car, Dune, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, Power of the Dog, West Side Story. If anything was going to get removed to put something else in, it'll be Nightmare Alley. But I wouldn't be putting the Spider-Man film in that place. There's plenty of other films that were so much better. I would argue about Don't Look Up being in Best Picture. And while I, you know, I sang its praises and told you how much I enjoyed it and spoke about it on this show, I don't think that is Best Picture material. I think it's a great movie, don't get me wrong, but I just don't think it's it's best picture material. I think it's in there as a bit of a nod to uh, more commercial filmmaking. Yeah. But I certainly don't put it in, in the best picture category. All across the whole lot, lot of the Oscars, it's quite a good mix 
uh, films. And I'm, I'm doing the usual where um, I now want to plug the gaps and try to see everything before the actual ceremony. So I've actually done well this year and I've not got a lot of gaps to plug uh, because we've covered quite a lot of the films that are up for, nomina- up for nominations on the show over the past few months. So that's why people should listen to us every week because we're always going to keep you in the loop. But the ceremony itself, which has been on decline over the past few years, they've been running hostless for a few years now. And last year's one was a shambles pulling in the lowest viewing figures that they've seen in Oscar history. This year, to give a chance to try to reinvigorate the Oscars, it's going to play as three acts with a different host for each of the one-hour sections so that that way it gives a chance to get a mixture of three different hosts to bring different varieties of audiences to the ceremony, basically. Whether or not it'll work remains to be seen, because I think I think that the Oscars are kind of losing their public interest in this day and age. And it is because people get upset that the film that they liked didn't get nominated. And you have to realise that there's always going to be something that you like that doesn't get put in there. It doesn't make it any less of a film for you. And it's completely irrelevant. The Oscars are irrelevant. I love watching them, but they are irrelevant. They do not shape my taste in films one way or another. Yeah, you don't go, that didn't win an Oscar, so I'll never go back and and watch that again. What you're more inclined to do is go, that I didn't see. It's been nominated. I ought to give that a go because clearly the plaudits are are, are out on that one that wasn't on my list. Um, Let's go through the list. Let's start with Best Supporting Actress. So we've got uh, Jesse Buckley for The Lost Daughter, Ariana DeBose for West Side Story, Judy Dench for Belfast, Kirsten Dunst for The Power of the Dog, and Ijuan Ellis for King Richard. What, what would be your pick out of that one? I will always sing her praises, no matter what film she's in. And when I spoke about this film, I did say how what she brings to the films never takes away from anyone else. And she bet everyone on the productions benefits from her presence. And that's Judy Dench, Belfast. She was the heart of that film. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I'm giving nothing away. The last shot is is of Judy Dench. Yeah, absolutely brilliant performance. I, I think I think Jesse Buckley is, is as a has become a powerhouse in the last couple of years, and this is somebody who sprang to fame through basically one of those Find a Star programs. But she's so much better. I think she's just an amazing screen presence, Jesse Buckley, and everything that she's in, she she just dominates. Ariana DeBose, I thought, was stunning in West Side Story. Again, couldn't take your eyes off her when, when you saw her. But I'm, I'm going to go with, with, with you on that one. I'm going to go with Judy, Judy Dench for Belfast because, as you said, she wasn't just a great performance. She was the heart of the film. Yeah. Uh, on my list, I've got best costume design next. Uh, so Cruella, Serrano, Dune, Nightmare Alley and West Side Story. Ooh, all of them tough choices. I am really torn on this. Really torn. I I think if I had to narrow it down, I'd get it to either Dune or West Side Story. I think Dune might do it. I think Cruella was was stunning because it was all about the couture trade. Um, I think it might be Dune. I don't think Dune's going to pull out anything much more than visual effects. No. Uh, and it's it's monstrous that Villeneuve wasn't nominated for Best Director. But I think Dune will pick up some of the secondary ones. So I'm thinking Dune, but I'd like it to be a West Side Story because I thought the costumes told the story as as much as uh, uh, as any other visual in the film. Yeah. Best Sound, Belfast, Dune, No Time to Die, Power of the Dog, West Side Story. Um, I, I think it's probably going to be Dune. Uh, I think No Time to Die might pick something up because, you know, it's, it, 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 it might get a, a, a nominal 
And I think something like sound would, is, was where it would work. But I'm, I'm kind of thinking June. June had a really complex sound mm. mix that added to its sort of uh, 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 richness, really. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably go with June as well. The only one out of those five films that I didn't see on the big screen was The Power of the Dog. Yeah, yeah. So that's the only one that I can't really compare how the sound was engineered or how anything was with the rest of them, which I think is a shame. This kind of demonstrates why I think that cinema is important is because, you know, some films will inevitably be diminished by the home experience. Yeah. Power of the Dog was still a great film anyway. Best original score. Now, I've already got my money on Dune for this one. I think so. I think it's Hans Zimmer's time, and I think they'll, they'll give it to Dune. Though Encanto... I think might be sort of the other, the, the good money on that one. Yeah, I mean, that, that's become quite popular in the public spirit, but whether it would be considered best score, not sure. Best adapted screenplay, I think June should get it, but I don't think it will. I think, I think Power, Power of the, of the dog, dog on this one. Yeah, yeah. I think Jane Power Campion. But I mean, both brilliant films. Coda as well is a really good screenplay. Yeah, I've not seen I, Coda yet. I was engrossed throughout. It was so well written. There's a lot, I've got a lot of love for that film. But after seeing Power of the Dog, I basically thought, you know what? Jane Campion's getting some awards on this one. Uh, original screenplay, though. You've got Belfast, Don't Look Up, Licorice Pizza, King Richard, and The Worst Person in the World. Not seen a couple of them. Hard to make a decision based on that. Yeah, I, I've got a feeling it might be Licorice Pizza based on the fact that, again, Paul Thomas Anderson is a, is a, a favourite nominee. So maybe they'll chuck uh, Best Original Screenplay his way this yeah. time. But in a real real world for me, I, I, a bit like you, I've not seen all of those. I'd like it to be Belfast. Yeah, uh, we'll skip over the shorts because uh, there's yeah. not a lot of them available out there at this point in time. Supporting actor, Kieran Hines in Belfast. Troy Kotsur in Coda, Jesse Plemons, Power of the Dog, J.K. Simmons being the Ricardos, Cody Smith-McPhee, Power of the Dog. There's some great names in there. I mean, J.K. Simmons, Jesse Plemons and Kieran Hines are the kind of actors that we constantly say, these are so good. These are so good in everything they do. But for me, Troy Kotsur, Coda stands out. Thoroughly recommend it. You have to check out Coda. I will do. I I, I love J.K. Simmons, so I, I'm hoping it's J.K. Simmons. But I thought Kieran Hines was was fantastic again, a, a powerful performance, but a, but a, a not a showy performance. Even though he dominates the screen whenever he's in, I do think there's a possibility there might be some underdog catching people out on this one, and Cody Smith McPhee yeah. might because he was a solid presence in Power of the Dog. He portrayed every aspect of that character beautifully. He could be an outsider. Best film editing, Don't Look Up, Dune, King Richard, Power of the Dog, Tick, Tick, Boom. Nearly got round to finally watching Tick, Tick, Boom the other night. <laughs> uh, I was so looking forward to it. Um, and then something happened where we couldn't we couldn't watch it. Uh, long story, not going to go into it on the pod, but um, so I missed it. I missed watching it again. I've been, I'm so looking forward to seeing Tick Tick Boom. But um, oh, I'd I like to think it's Dune for best film editing. I think it, Dune's going to take the technicals, yeah. certainly. I, I do think Tick Tick Boom's in with a chance on this one. The editing on that film is sharp, it's snappy, and it's pacey, and it fits the tone and the style of the material it's presented. So I think, I think this could be a Tick Tick Boom win. So that leads into best makeup and hairstyling. Coming to America? That surprised me. <laughs> Cruella, Dune, Eyes of Tammy Faye, and House of Gucci. I mean, so Cruella, come on. Cruella, <laughs> yeah. Cruella's all about makeup and hairstyling, and in a good way. Uh, it's, yeah. it's the theme of the movie about identity, so absolutely perfect. Animated feature category. Encanto, Flea, Luca, The Mitchells versus The Machines, Raya and the Last Dragon. 
you know where my heart is on this one. Yeah, I think we're in the same place. I'd, I'd love it to be Mitchells versus the Machines, though I do think the good money will be on Flea. Yeah, there's a lot around Flea, because Flea's animated feature and best documentary feature category that it's made it into. That might give it a chance for one of the more popular choices, like Mitchells versus the Machine, and give Flea in documentary feature and put yeah. it into there. But I, I'd like to see Summer of Soul walk away with that. Yeah. Because I thought it was beautiful. Original song. Uh, you've got Be Alive from King Richard. Dos Gortas for Encanto. Down to Joy from Belfast. Didn't really stand out for me. No. No Time to Die. I, I wonder if that's the one that we'll chuck at Bond. Mm. I think they'll chuck something at Bond because uh, I just think, you know, to see Bond being nominated, and it doesn't often yeah. get nominated other than set design. I think they might chuck best original song at it. And somehow you do, Four Good Days. See, with No Time to Die, I'm not a big fan of Billie Eilish. And when I first heard that song, I didn't quite, I didn't oh, get it. It's, it's bland. I think it's a bland song. And I think it's certainly a bland Bond film. But once it was layered with the opening titles, it kind of worked. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced. I think the last run since uh, Skyfall, no one really, nothing stands out. You're not getting like a Shirley Bassey or a Tom Jones on that that really knocked you for six. I think they've all been a bit weak. You Know My Name by Chris Cornell was possibly the last great Yeah, I'll agree with you. Totally on that one. Uh, cinematography. Now, this is the one that always becomes difficult for me to pick from because, man, these are some great, great looking films. Nightmare Alley. The Power of the Dog, The Tragedy of Macbeth, West Side Story. Oh, I can't pick. I think it's just got to go with what, what you what you liked. Um, so a, a tough choice, but between Dune and West Side Story for me. Mm. The Power of the Dog and Dune are both films that in my review, I stated that the cinematography was absolutely sumptuous and I cannot distinguish which one of those two. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go for two of them at the moment. So there's Dune and Power of the Dog. As it gets closer to the awards... I might revisit a few of these films and narrow it down a bit more. But at the moment, I'm cheating. <laughs> Production design, Dune, Nightmare Alley, Power of the Dog, Tragedy of Macbeth, West Side Story. We're seeing the familiar names starting to rattle through in categories now. Dune's my fave on this one. Yeah, mine too. Because everything to do with the production of that just seems so right. Uh, visual effects, Dune, Free Guy was a bit of a wild one. Yeah. Um, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, Spidey That's No Way Home. That's a for me, seeing Shang-Chi in there. And uh, No Time to Die as well. Let's be honest, Shang-Chi and Spider-Man are not going to win it. It won't be Free Guy. It's No Time to Die or Dune. Yeah, yeah. I think and I right. think it has to go to Dune. The whole imagery of the visual effects in that are stunning. So we get to the, the main ones. The so chill. we get to Best Actress, Jessica Chastain for Eyes of Tammy Faye, still not seen it. Olivia <laughs> Coleman, Lost Daughter, Penelope Cruz, Parallel Mothers, Nicole Kidman being the Ricardos, and Kristen Stewart, Spencer. Okay, so looking at that, Lost Daughter's uh, a great movie, but it is uh, quite it's quite a surrealist movie. Yeah. So I think, knowing what the Oscar board is going to go for, I think will either be Jessica Chastain or Nicole, Nicole Kidman. Yeah. But I'd like it to be Oliver Coleman. Yeah. I don't want it to be Kristen Stewart for Spencer. I know there's a lot of buzz about her being great in it. And she was, but the film itself was dull as dishwater. Mm. Um, I just think it, it's a cop-out if she gets that. And it's the same with Nicole Kidman would be in the Ricardos. This whole cop-out that when you play a, a, like someone from real-life history, you're practically yeah. guaranteed a win. I don't... I mean, I, I didn't take to be in the Ricardos anyway. I thought that it, it was okay, but it was a bit lacklustre. Jessica Chastain or Olivia Coleman? 
would be where my money is on this one. Both on Olivia Colman. So best actor, Javier Bardem for being the Ricardos, Benedict Cumberbatch, Power of the Dog, Will Smith, King Richard, Denzel Washington, Tragedy of Macbeth, or Andrew Garfield, Tick, Tick, Boom. Now, the good money will be on Benedict Cumberbatch and Andrew Garfield. Yeah, although the Oscar bait of King Richard might get the win for Will Smith here. I think he's got a chance, but I would like to see Andrew Garfield take this. Which is what I was going to say. I would like to see Andrew Garfield. Uh, I think it's good to see somebody new up there. Same with Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, Denzel Washington, though, when was the last time Denzel won won an Oscar? Is it now one of those Oscars where they go, you know, we really ought to give something to Denzel? I'd like to think that it's not one of them, but we'll sit, we'll find out on the night. Uh, Best director, we get to Kenneth Branagh for Belfast, Drive My Car, Ryosuke Hamaguchi, Paul Thomas Anderson, Licorice Pizza, Jane Campion, The Power of the Dog, and Steven Spielberg, West Side Story. I'm calling it now. I'm calling it now, Power of the Dog. I think it's Spielberg on this one. Um, Okay. I'll tell you why. Because I think giving a woman best director will go a long way for making up for not not being as diverse as it should be. But I think it will be the fact that Jane Campion, again, is deserved. Spielberg's already won an Oscar, so maybe Paul Thomas Anderson, but I think Jane Campion for Power of the Dog. We briefly mentioned the Best Picture lineup earlier. I don't know. I don't know out of the Best Pictures which one I'd want I'm, to take I'm out of I'm going to call Power of the Dog right now. So you think there'll be a, a director and Best Picture? Not the two never, never exclusive. I just got to, got to think that the, the Power of the Dog ticks a lot of Oscar boxes, even though subject matter-wise, it's not usual fodder for Oscar board and something like West Side Story. But they do like to split Best Director and Best Picture, don't they? They have done in recent history, yeah. So will that be Spielberg for West Side Story, Best Director, and Best Picture, Power of the Dog? Power of the Dog. All the other way around, one or the other. But we'll find out in March. Back end of March. I'll be uh, sat up all night watching that. So... Other news items this week, it's not all been about the Oscars. We've got some casting and we've got some trailers that have landed. Let's start with Blade Runner. And after 2049 failed to ignite the box office, it was expected. Oh, yeah. It was expected that we wouldn't see a return to Ridley Scott's visionary world again for more decades ahead. However, Amazon have come to the rescue. They have. And they are developing a Blade Runner 2099 series, which they are fast tracking to get into production as soon as possible. Uh, Ridley Scott will executive produce. The, the series, it's not going to be a film, it's going to be a series with Silke Louisa, who wrote Shining Girls, set to write and executive produce for Scott Free Productions, Amazon Studios and Alcon Entertainment. Set 50 years after 2049, because it's 2099, so we don't know anything about what the storyline or the characters will be at this point in time. But just a chance, just to have Scott having a chance to expand that world that he's built and move it ahead again. The same way that Blade Runner to Blade Runner 2049 had a huge chunk of the history moved ahead. We'll have the same again for a thematically similar um, approach to sci-fi, but obviously giving them a chance to be a bit more free and creative in what they can do. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it clearly. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to see that the world's expanded. It's good to see Ridley Scott back involved in it. And, yeah. you know, full kudos for Blade Runner 2049. For some, still an undiscovered classic. So I'm hearing Netflix Marvel series, including Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Iron Fist, Punisher, etc., etc. 
are leaving Netflix. Well, it's not just your hearing. If you go onto any of those shows now, you get told that the 28th of this month is the last day that you'll be able to watch them on the service. So I'm guessing they're going to Disney+. Plus. Uh, well, we don't know at this point in time. We know that the rights are now reverting back to Disney's ownership. And obviously, they're going to distribute them in one way or another. But because of the darker, more adult content... The natural home in the US would seem to be Hulu and we would get the star section of Disney Plus internationally. But they might surprise us. They might put it into the main Marvel portal on Disney Plus and just add advi- parental advisory warnings. That has to be some some parental advisory warning, to be honest with you. Well, they did that with um, did that with Hitmonkey. Yeah, there's a there's a possibility that we'll get decent home releases in disc format for people who want to collect the box sets. Uh, inevitably, within the next few months, they will arrive on the streaming services. They might just arrive as exclusives on Disney. They might sell them for other streamers, Apple, Amazon, etc., to also benefit from them. We don't know at this point in time. Yeah, you know Charlie Cox made his little appearance in, uh, in Spider-Man No Way Home. Well, Charlie Cox, it appears, knows a little bit about what's next for Daredevil in the MCU, even though he's not saying. Yes, uh, he's been asked by THR over this past week about the plans for the characters of Matt Murdock and Kingpin, who have both been reintroduced into the new Marvel Universe in recent months. And his response was, I know a little, not a huge amount, but a little. I'm imagining, I'm hoping, hoping that our worlds will collide again because the stuff we've done in the past was tremendous fun to do. And he's such an incredible actor, talking about Vincent D'Onofrio. We have to start every conversation with, what do you know? Because you have to be careful. It's really exciting. So he's he's now stuck in that playing that, ah, I'm not allowed to reveal anything game that Tom Holland is so notoriously bad at. <laughs> yeah, he managed, you know, to be honest, Charlie Cox managed to keep the secret very well hidden. In fact, making the, the entire piece going, how could I be in Los Angeles when I'm making a film here storyline? Yeah. Um, staying with Marvel, Anthony Ramos has been added to the Marvel series Ironheart. Um, the guy appeared wonderfully in the Broadway behemoth of a, of a show, Hamilton, which I, I, I love a great deal and will be joining Ironheart, which is probably out of all the Marvel series I am the least interested in. I'm moderately interested, but yeah, it's the it's the least interested out of all the shows because the other characters so far announced have just had so much more going for them. Um, sticking with Marvel again, but we're over at Sony and the Craven the Hunter movie that already has Aaron Taylor Johnson signed up for a multi-picture deal for has now added Russell Crowe to the cast. Okay, that would have been my ideal choice for Craven the Hunter probably 10 years ago. During yep. the Sam Raimi days, that would have been the absolutely perfect casting, fan casting of, uh, of Craven. It's, it's expected that he's probably going to be playing one of the Kravinov family because the plot details are under wraps, but all the main characters are said to be Craven's family members themselves. So it kind of makes sense that Russell Crowe would be one of the Kravinov hunters. Daddy Craven. Daddy Craven is what I'm saying. I'm calling yeah. it now. This will mark Crowe's second Marvel character because he's going to be appearing in the upcoming Thor Love and Thunder, directed by Taika Waititi, where he's going to play Zeus. J.C. Chandor is going to direct the Craven film from a screenplay by Art Markham, Matt Holloway and Richard Wenk. Avi Avid and Matt Tolmach are producing as expected, and it's slated for January 2023 release. Uh, Michael Mann's long gestating Ferrari feature for SDX Films is now moving ahead and has cast Adam Driver, who's going to play Enzo Ferrari, and Penelope Cruz, who's going to play Laura Ferrari. 
And Shailene Woodley has also been cast as Linda Lardy. I've not seen much of Michael Mann for some time. I didn't see the movie he did with Chris Hemsworth about hacking. Uh, Black Hat, wasn't it? Yeah. So it's been some time since I've uh, visited him. It's been some time since I've stepped into Michael Mann world. So yeah, I'm always interested. Uh, this film is going to focus. Uh, start. It will start set in the summer of 1957 when Enzo Ferrari is his life is in turmoil. Both bankruptcy stalking the company, but also his personal life is falling apart with his magic marriage struggles and the mourning for a son who he's lost and the acknowledgement of another. Uh, but he inspires his spring team of drivers some who he looks as surrogate sons, and decides to roll the dice on one race. Red cars slamming through towns and mountain passes towards unpredictable outcomes. The futures of all the characters involved, and indeed the reputation of Ferrari himself, are written on screen. This seems like ideal material for a man who's very much a visual spectacle kind of director. And I look forward to seeing what he can do with a good race kind of setting. Um, talking of looking forward, uh, we've mentioned this a couple of times, and that's Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon, which, as we've mentioned before, is Zack Snyder's take on a pitch he had to Lucasfilm. And uh, he revealed a couple of weeks ago some very Ralph McQuarrie-looking uh, production art, but now casting is well underway. So we've got Sophie Butella in the lead role, Starring alongside now announced Charlie Hunnan, Jenna Malone, and a man who thought his career was completely <laughs> washed up, uh, Ray Fisher. I mean, if Ray Fisher was going to have any career going forwards, it had to inevitably be with, be with Zack Snyder at some point. But yeah, there's also Jaimon Hounsou is in there, Bay Donna, and and a load of names that I've never heard before. <laughs> He's kind of Jenna Malone's one of his go-to's, though, isn't it? Yeah. Jenna Malone is a great choice. It's another one of them that Zack Snyder's, he's written it, he's co-wrote it with his usual team, he's got full creative control. I hope he doesn't become overblown like Army of the Dead was, and he can rein it back in. Yeah, watch it a second time and then just talk about reining in. That's all I can say. But I, I am... Excited for this. It starts shooting in April and it, the shooting will run from April to November, which means there's going to be a release sometime next year on this one onto Netflix. I love me a space opera, as you know. Um, so I'm, I'm, it's on my Call Me Excited list. Yeah, if you've got to make a remake of Battle Beyond the Stars, you might as well uh, <laughs> make it for Netflix. <laughs> Speaking of remakes, have you seen the trailer for um, Firestarter, the new adaptation of the Stephen King? I did. And you know what? does everything it should do. And it was nice. Yep. The main thing that, that I, I was really impressed by, I didn't recognise Zac Efron in the lead role as the father. Uh, but the main thing I was going to point out, that thankfully they've cast a Native American in the role of a Native American, unlike yep. George T. Scott in the Mark Lester <laughs> version. Yep. Uh, the story, for those who don't know, centres on a young girl who's cursed with the gift of pyrokinesis the ability to set things on fire using her mind. But she finds herself hunted down by a secret government agency that wants to harness her gift as a weapon. And so goes on the run. And the trailer, yeah, it sold it for me. I'm yeah, in. absolutely. Uh, Bloomhouse are bringing that to us. A couple of small changes I noticed from the books. The book reads like gangbusters if you ever get a chance to read it. I can't remember yeah. the original film apart from the fact it starred uh, Drew Barrymore in, in the lead. But I, I remember in the book the parents had got gifted abilities as well and it doesn't look like that's carrying on into this movie but it, it doesn't matter a jot to me because they seem to have captured the essence of it. Yeah. 
It's landed this week, Uncharted, but the director, Ruben Fleischer, has confirmed that he's working on an adaptation of another Naughty Dog franchise. Okay. Jack and Daxter. There's one I don't know, completely unknown to me. Oh, Jack and Daxter. I mean, Jack and Daxter games are fantastic. They're great little platform, 3D platformers, collecting things, hunting down things. The first game was so light and jolly. And then the second game just sort of became immensely dark uh, for completely weird reasons. Uh, but it was a cornerstone franchise on the PlayStation 2. And it's seen remastered versions for the PlayStation 3 and PlayStation 4 and always been a popular one. Yeah, don't know that one. And I love Naughty Dog. They are my by far my favourite game developers. Amusingly, before this was confirmed by Fleischer, Tom Holland had joked in an interview when asked what video game would he like to play, like portray on screen in a live action film. And he said, oh, I want to be in a Jack and Daxter film. And then he went on to say, but I'd want it to be made by A24 and be really dark and weird. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, well, maybe that'll be the second one. The second game um, adapted to film would be the A24 one. In the meantime, the first one could be a nice little joyful sci-fi romp. I'm talking of films that we're not interested in <laughs> at all. Well, you say that, but I am. <laughs> Are you? Okay. I'm, I'm, I am because of who's directing it. But, but, yes. Uh... This is a Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach's Barbie movie that is in production at Warner Brothers. And it's simply because they're involved in it. Yes, yeah. That... I'm interested because I want to know what kind of take they're bringing to this. Uh, this is the Barbie movie that's going to star Margot Robbie, Ryan Gosling, and America Ferreira is now adding Simu Liu to the, to the mix. Okay. And other casting news. It's been a while since we last mentioned Oppenheimer, but now we've got Dane DeHaan has just been added to the cast of um, Nolan's Oppenheimer biopic for Universal Pictures. That's turning into one of the best casts ever assembled on screen. Killian Murphy, Robert Downey Jr., Matt Damon, Emily Blunt, Florence Pugh, Rami Malek, Benny Safdie, Josh Hartnett. Wow. I guess we should have mentioned this while we were talking about Marvel, but uh, Loki star Owen Wilson has confirmed that he will return as Mobius and Mobius in season two of Loki. And while we're still with Marvel, did you see the picture of Mr. Knight uh, from the yes. upcoming Moon Knight series, that looks very cool. Yep, it's looking very good. We've not got long to wait for that. And before we round off the news, uh, Village Roadshow are suing Warner Brothers Pictures because of the release of The Matrix Resurrections. In particular, the use of it to drive subscribers to HBO Max, the Village Roadshow say that they had no involvement in the negotiations on this and so have lost out financially from box office, which has been somewhat lacklustre on a film that, yes, it was never going to do as good as the original Matrix films, but it should have done better than it did. But didn't it not do that well because, A, poor word of mouth, and secondly, it was a poor movie? The the argument that they've got in return is that if you look on the Torrent Tracker websites, you will see that it was heavily pirated. Right, okay, and that was an argument and that... And therefore, the digital release has ruined their box office potential because that shows that people wanted to see this film. They just weren't going to pay for it when they can get it for free. Had that Same with, with Black Widow. Yeah, it, it's this whole day and date streaming release thing that has caused so many complications over this past year and a bit that they now need to really work out, is it worth risking this going forwards when it's a big release like this that won't make its money back and the streaming's not going to compensate? Just before we go, uh, Reacher Season 2 has been confirmed by Amazon, which I binged last week and thoroughly enjoyed. But sadly, we have got some sad news because uh, uh, this particular man who passed away helped shape our dreams. Yes, this week... 
we were met with the sad news that the special effects legend Douglas Trumbull died at the age of 79. He passed away, according to his daughter, Amy Trumbull, from a stroke after a two-year battle with cancer and a brain tumour. This guy, you might not recognise his name if you're not as immersed in films as people like me and Lee, but you will know his work. He worked on the visuals of films such as 2001 Space Odyssey, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Blade Runner, Terence Malick's Tree of Life, Star Trek The Motion Picture, and The Andromeda Strain. His work on films like such as Silent Running laid a template from which like spaceships in serious sci-fi will be built going forwards from that point onwards. He also did un- uncredited work in films such as Towering Inferno. His name was all over Hollywood at one point in time. And he is responsible, like Lee said, for our dreams being put on screen. He, he absolutely revolutionised special effects. Special effects weren't always seen as being as being taken particularly very seriously, especially with, with science fiction. And Douglas Trumbull came in uh, and created a whole new level with 2001, of special effects. And, and he took some of those ideas from 2001 into silent running. As Andy said, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture, um, and lastly, his last project was The Man Who Killed Hitler and then Bigfoot in 2018. Uh, he directed Silent Running, which I've got an awful lot of, of, of love for. Um, I've mentioned it many times on this. So a, a true innovator, true genius, and uh, uh, one who's who revolutionised cinema for the kind of geeks that we are. It couldn't have been done without somebody like Douglas Trumbull. Um, not only did he direct Silent Running, he directed the much maligned brainstorm which was um is a is an interesting movie uh, more well known for the fact that the star natalie wood died while making that movie and has always been shrouded by that but uh he, he made some absolutely in- incredible incredible films as well and, you know he did the the ride video short for back to the future he did lots and lots of other shorts for for gaming things like golden eyes theater of time uh, a, a true true genius and that is this week's the news you're listening to the film file your favorite podcast about film brought to you by film geeks and if this is your first time well hello but if you want to hear more film file all you have to do and we implore that you do is head over to your favorite podcast platform and hit that subscribe button and remember to leave a like you'll get not only the film file delivered to you every week in all its glory but additional bonus episodes as well. Go on, you know you want to. If you want to know more about The Film File and us folks behind it, all you have to do is this. Head on over to Twitter and follow us at Film File UK. Check us out on various other social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Film File UK, or drop us an email with any thoughts, suggestions, films that you love, films that you hate, jokes that we've made that you love, jokes that we've made that you hate, Anything that you anything that you want, just get in touch with us. A podcast at filmfile.uk. And now it's time for this week's deep dive, in which Andy and I will take literally that a deep dive into some classic movies, films we love, sometimes films we've not seen, sometimes films we've hated, but films that need a little bit of extra exploration. We're going to be talking this week about the 1958 American science fiction horror film, The Blob, which on all accounts, looks like a bit of a terrible B-movie, but stick with us. It not only had the first starring role for a young actor called Steve McQueen, it's one of those that once you've seen it, will stay with you forever. Two teenagers see it first. 
like a falling star from outer space. Boy, that was close. Hey, come on, I want to see if I can find it. An old man finds it, touches it, and this is the shocking result. From then on, there's no stopping the blob as it spreads from town to town. It's indestructible. It's indescribable. Nothing can stop it. This town is in danger. How can it be stopped? Mob hysteria sweeps one city. Before long, the nation and then the world could fall before the blood-curdling threat of the Bob. Starring Steve McQueen and a cast of exciting young people. The film features a growing corrosive alien amoeba, an entity that crashes to Earth from outer space. Of course, it wasn't going to crash to Earth from inner space. Inside a meteorite, it envelopes everything in its path in the small community of Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, growing larger, redder, and more aggressive, eventually becoming as large as a building. Who's going to stop it? Well, a very young Steve McQueen on a motorbike was going to stop it. You say a very young Steve McQueen. <laughs> He's the most unlikely teenager yeah, in this Yeah, let's be film. honest. He, he, was, he was. He was 28 years old. <laughs> yeah. I love how in old B-movies that you got actors who clearly weren't in their teens anymore playing teenagers. I remember uh, I was a teenage caveman featuring Robert Vaughan <laughs> who looks like Robert Vaughan exactly as he looked in The Magnificent Seven. But anyway, this is a Jack Harris production and his first. And this is one of those movies which... Well, there were tons of them at the time, monster movies, B-movies, but there's something about the blob which, which elevates it out of that category. Now, is it the fact that the blob is actually quite scary? Is it the, the fact that it was Steve McQueen as a 28-year-old teenager? <laughs> or is it the fact that it's just a piece of film iconography, including that song, hey, written by Burt Bacharach, did you know? But it's a film that holds up remarkably well. I, I, I've never seen this at the movies, though I do remember once there was a, a double feature of The Blob and another film from that era, but I've only ever seen it on late night telly. And I remember thinking, this is pretty good. Very squelchy and a really keen looking idea for a monster. The acting is, is pretty terrible, um, apart from Steve McQueen, who has that presence to it but and it's very talky you see people talk about what's coming as opposed to seeing it but when you catch the blob hey the tricks even though they look phony are pretty effective why do you think andy that the blob is one of those that, that's kind of surpassed that kind of dreadful b movies a not if not z movie uh, and become something that's um that still stands up and and people talk about i think it, it yeah it's still like you say the acting's pretty wonky and it has all the generic templates that all the b movies had at the time you've got the professor you've got the doctor you've got all the archetypes through it through in there but the one thing that stands out is the design of the creature every other creature is always been something that we've seen before to one one extent or another be it you know a giant ants in them or be it um, a man in a rubber suit go like terrorizing people around the black lagoon it's always been familiar whereas the blob it's just a blob. It's a, it's it's an unknown entity. And watch it. I mean, I rewatched this last night 
um, after it got in. And I've watched the nice digitally restored version and it looks really good. Like you say, the effects are cheaply made, but they still hold up well because the way that they're used. The blob attacking people, it just suddenly latches onto people and slides up their arm. You know, the first the first guy who gets attacked, the old man, when it just lunges down the stick onto his arm, it's a bit of a jump shock moment and it works. And it would it was done by the simple trickery of, okay, like have the stick hold up in the air and the blob is just uh, draping down and then we'll speed up the footage. Done. Simple effect, works a treat. And it's the unpredictability of it because you don't know this entity. You don't know what this thing can do. And as it starts to envelope people or structures, it's like, where could this thing stop? It's getting bigger and bigger. There's the, there's the impactful scene of it, you know, leaking through the holes in the wall in the movie theater and you can tell it's a model of the interior of the movie theater but you don't care by that point because you're caught by everyone panicking and running out and that's what helps it i mean there's one bit of the effects that is absolutely dreadful and it did make me laugh and that's as it's about to envelope the diner (laughs) and it's just it's a photo backdrop that they just lob a bit of blob onto. <laughs> and it's just like, you even see the, the, the photo wobble. And it's like, you know what? I'll let it go. Because by that point, I was sold on it. And yes, it's pure B-movie nonsense. But it plays it. It plays it with a tongue-in-cheek knowingness. And I think that's what helps. Um, there was a sequel to it called Son of the Blob. Directed by Larry Hagman. Larry Hagman. And that came out in 1972. And that was really sort of a, a horror comedy of sorts and uh, it was Hagman's first feature film as a director and we probably know why he didn't go on to do anything (laughs) else after this one which is not very good it is amusing that um, when Larry Hagman's Beware the Blob got released on VHS in the 80s it was given the tagline the movie that JR shot (laughs) (laughs) of course it did and for for those who have who don't know what the reference is uh, Larry Hagman played JR Ewing on Dallas and the whole thing he makes me just feel so old there was a whole thing of who shot JR and people wearing T-shirts of who shot JR. So it was a perfect marketing ploy. And it kind of worked because it built it up like an audience on home release. But there was a remake uh, of the same name directed by Chuck Russell. And you know what? It's really, really good. And it does exactly yeah. what the blob should have done the first time round. Um, there's a lot of interesting genre favourites connected to this, including... A screenplay by Frank Darabont, of course, went on to do The Green Mile that we talked about and uh, uh, started The Walking Dead and a a real genre favourite. It's exactly the same story, but with modern day effects. Mm. It functions as a bit of a conspiracy theory film. Uh, The threat of the original film as an alien entity from outer space, the remake offers in making the threat a more of a biological weapon created by a secret government agency. And the blob is closely followed by soldiers and scientists in protective suits it gives it much more of a cynical edge but plays into the uh, the idea of what the blob is about and and it keeps it it keeps it very much alive chuck russell had come off the back of uh, a nightmare in elm street 3 and, and as i said it had a screenplay by frank darabont and the special effects are particularly gruesome because you don't just get the blob you get the idea of what happens to you once the blob envelopes you for want of a better term um, and I love it. I think it's one of those yeah. remakes which is, of course, much better than the original film. A, a bit of an undiscovered classic. It, it's still got that B-movie charm, but it, it's it's fast-paced and it's gory and it's got enough thrills in it. Packs a punch and it's it's definitely a worthwhile, um, a worthwhile remake. It kind of gets overlooked by so many people, whereas other classic B-movies that were remade, 
have either a cult following or had like box office success. You know, you you talk about like Cronenberg's The Fly, which was a B movie remake. Yeah, Carpenter's the thing. You've got Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the remake of Body Snatchers. You know, they've all got the prominence, but the blob kind of just went under people's radar and undeservedly so. It it was a brilliant film. It's well worth checking out. Track it down and get it watched. I mean, the film was a bomb at the box office and it took Russell a good few years before he returned to film with Jim Carrey smash the mask. But it was a shame that he came off the back of a well-received Nightmare on Elm Street film. The third film is one of the is considered by most people to be the second best Nightmare on Elm Street film. And then his film that should have been a success just didn't find its audience. Because of films like The Blob, watching the original one at an early age, that got me watching all the B-movie sci-fis that I could and I've really immersed myself through them through the years. And that's something that continues through to today with, you know, when when I regularly say I'm digging through the trash on Amazon, that's usually me looking for the modern day B movies. And in this day and age, you know, there's been franchises like the Sharknado franchise, which are the modern day B movies. They know what there are. They're having fun with them and people embrace them. B movies get people throw out, oh, it's just a B movie as though it's an insult. But no, B movies have a charm. They have a pureness behind them. You know, they're made for a bit of fun. And sometimes they can come across serious. Sometimes they can just be Sharknado. Uh, But overall, they are a way to just capture that whole it, it's the drive-in element because yeah. these were drive-in movie theaters that these used to get screened at and it's all to capture that essence of what it is watching things in that environment i've got a lot of love for b movies if you're on twitter look for uh, the film crowd on there because every week they do um, film screenings that they'll find out where you can watch these things for free online and put out a message and anyone who wants to watch and tweet along with them as they're watching classic f- films, and they do particularly a lot of B-movies, and they will discuss aspects of them. They'll have fun poking fun at them the way that you're supposed to with B-movies. You're supposed to poke fun at the effects. You're supposed to find them cheesy. You're supposed to think that all the characters are corny because that's what they are. Embrace yeah. the B-movies and embrace the blob. Just don't <laughs> let it dissolve you. <laughs> Um, there was going to be a, a, another remake, but that seems to have fallen afoul. Originally, uh, Rob Zombie was going to do a remake back in 2009. And then in 2015, Simon West had been announced as a director. Whether we'll see another blob, who knows? But the character lives on, can have lived on in Monsters vs. Aliens, for instance, yep. with the character of Bob. Yeah, so it's yeah, it's been inspirational throughout sci-fi and animated history well worth checking out but certainly check out the remake you can find the blob 1958 version streaming in its digitally restored format on youtube at this point in time and that's it for this week's deep dive and we'll be back again next week with another deep dive so plenty of new stuff out for the half-term holidays this end of the world and probably the biggest is going to be a big screen adaptation of the Naughty Dog video game, one of my favorite video games, by the way, Uncharted, starring Peter Parker himself, Tom Holland. You're kind of weird, kind of cute too. I'm kind of offended, but I'm also kind of flattered. Tom Holland. A little young for a bartender, aren't you? I'm old for prom, aren't you? I got a job. It's the biggest treasure that's never been found. Oh my God! No! Nate, come on! No! Starring Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg. What's with the catch? It's just for you. What? Life seems super sad. I don't know. I'm not going to keep this thing. There have been a lot of video game adaptations. Most fall pretty low on the list of being 
great movies. And every time a video game adaptation comes out, everybody always cries, is this going to be the one which takes video game adaptation movies into a whole new level? So you've got Tom Holland, you've got Mark Wahlberg, Antonio Banderas in Uncharted, which is now, I think, about four or five games in. I've played three of them, and by far, some of my favorite video games. And a kind of a play on Raiders of the Lost Ark. The film opens with orphaned bartender Nathan Drake, played by Tom Holland, who learns that his long-lost brother has been on the trail of an equally long-lost pirate gold. Teams up with mercenary Sully, played by Mark Wahlberg, to find both. Here we go for lots of running around, shooting, jumping, free-running, pirate ships. This film should be great, shouldn't it, Andy? Yeah, it should be. And, and it is fun. There are elements that work and it feels like the whole thing has come full circle because if we take, if we go back to find out where Uncharted came from, Uncharted was basically if someone had said, what if we make Tomb Raider, but we make it the character a male and Tomb Raider was basically if someone says, what if we made an Indiana Jones game, but it wasn't Indiana Jones and they made it female. And so this film now makes an Uncharted film that feels like it wants to be an Indiana Jones film. It has the same investigations into catacombs. It has the, the, the setup at the beginning that is like maps and charts and this leads to this treasure and this leads to this clue. And then it does the whole world map with the plane going across it and leaving the red line behind it. And at that point, it was like, this isn't quite uncharted for me. <laughs> but yeah. I am quite, I am kind of enjoying what you're doing. It's fun. I think what the, the fun comes more from how likable Tom Holland is, yeah. even though he doesn't seem to be playing Nathan Drake here. He seems to be playing Peter Parker, pretending he's Nathan Drake. I don't know. I mean, this is an earlier version of Nathan Drake. This is a young Nathan Drake before yeah. he was the grizzled adventurer that he was by the games. This is Uncharted Begins, isn't it? For anybody yeah. expecting Nathan Drake. Now, the reason that the games work for me, and I'll get on to, to jumping in more about the film, is A, they were brilliantly executed. They look cinematic. They have this knowingness all the way through. Mm. Fantastic dialogue, great characterization. Uh, Nathan Drake is Nathan Fillion, for want of a better term. He's got that <laughs> Nathan Fillion approach. So when everybody's been talking about who would you cast in Uncharted, you go with Nathan Fillion because the, the two are so identifiable. But of course, they've gone for a much younger, which makes perfect sense because Nathan Fillion's getting on a bit now. If they'd have made this 10, 15 years ago, 12 years ago, then Nathan Fillion would have been Nathan Drake. Yeah. It's kind of disappointing for a, for a film adaptation of a game where the dialogue in the game is better <laughs> and better delivered it is in the game than it is in the movie, I thought. And, and not as cinematic as as the game. Uh, and, and I just couldn't get over that while watching it. I, I kind of like the idea of Tom Holland playing this role and, and doing something a, a little bit differently and, and approaching yeah. it from kind of the young uh, Nathan Drake, because if, if, if it does become a franchise, he's going to be playing him for the next three or four years. He's going to be in his 30s by the time you get round to the next couple of films. But it just felt... I've got to tell you this review that I read. I think it was either The Guardian or The Times, which described um, Uncharted as uh, having more fun watching your sat-nav than watching Uncharted, <laughs> which I thought was mean, but it did make me laugh. And there were bits and there were moments in this film that I, I thoroughly enjoyed, but it was so lightweight that it just never really landed. Uh, some good set pieces, 
unfortunately so CGI'd that there was never a sense of threat. Yeah. I, I began to to warm to the characterization of, of Holland and especially the burgeoning relationship he has with Mark Wahlberg, which I, I thought was okay. I know that's been criticized elsewhere. Uh, and as I think you pointed out, that it's um it was a burgeoning relationship. The critics of it say that there isn't the chemistry between the pair that the characters have in the games. However, they're missing the point that this was two people who don't trust each other from when they first met. And this film is showing them slowly building that bond. By the end of it, the rapport between them is fantastic and likable. But early on, it's very like uneasy and it's supposed to be like that. I think that they work together quite well on screen. Yeah. The big standout for me cast-wise in this, I mean, everyone's... Okay, Antonio Banderas just turns up to be himself as he always is. But um, Tati Gabrielle as uh, Joe Braddock, the mercenary, she was the one who stood out for me. Yes, because let's be honest, Sophia Ali uh, for a leading lady was just a void. She, yeah. brought, she had absolutely no charisma and no heart to to a film that needed a, a, a charismatic leading lady to bounce off Tom Holland's charms. I thought. You know, she's she's not a leading lady at all. She's a, a, a third-rate bit player. Yeah. It's disappointing for fans of the game that one of the characters has been given such a disservice. But, like I say, rest of the cast are okay around her. I, I have fun with it. I do think that it is back-end heavy. Yes. That the big ac- even though it opens with an action spectacle, that's more a tease for an action spectacle later in the film. And it has the best set pieces all crammed into that last half hour. Yeah, that's when it felt like an Uncharted movie at that point. Yeah, it doesn't mean that the rest of the film was flat as a result. No, the investigation into that, you know, I love the National Treasure-esque piecing together of clues as they're trying to work out the puzzles. That was great. It's just that there was nothing to break up the long exposition until the end when it's all slammed together. It's like, oh, and it's over. And it finished. It just seemed to finish there. And then it, there's a mid, for those who like to know these things, there's a mid credit sting that is worth sticking around for, even if it will infuriate you at the same time. But I had fun with the film, but it was disposable fun. Yeah. It's disposable entertainment. Is it a good good cinema release? Yeah, I think families will embrace it. Is it a good Uncharted film? Mm. That's out for debate. Um, I'm going to go with no, it's not a great Uncharted film. I think when you've got a game that are producing cinematic set pieces that are ingenious uh, and, and build, like uh, uh, you know the train sequence in Uncharted 2 or uh, yeah. you know the climbing sequences from uh, the very last Uncharted movie, there were so many little missed opportunities that the game... The game's got a realistic feel to it. It's it's close to Raiders of the Lost Ark as you're going to get. And the film couldn't reproduce that. It's not like it's trying to reproduce something on a different planet or a different solar system, different world. It, it takes place in the world that we know around us and it just doesn't have the sense of scale that the games have. And and ultimately, uh, it didn't have the quips. You know, Nathan Drake is is a flawed lead character. And I, what I always liked about the game is he's always got a quip for every occasion. He is human, and I mean that within every sense of the fact that he's an avatar, but he's human that when he lands and he he tumbles and he falls and he hurts himself, he's the perfect character to take onto the big screen without losing anything of that character. But for some reason, they lost all those those small points which make up a good 
Uncharted movie. It did, for me, come more across like National Treasure than it did yeah. that. Tom Holland is, is good. I thought Mark Wahlberg is good in it. Uh, both are charming. Both are funny. Uh, I think their chemistry developed as the, as the characters went on. Um, as you said, Antonio Bandanas, apart from uh, a one really good set piece, piece of dialogue, is underused. And um, I think that the leading lady, Sophia Ali, was just so weak that you don't miss her when she's on screen and that's it. So it's watchable. Yeah, could have been so much better. So next up, a film that I'm looking forward to seeing, and that's Death of the Nile. You must meet Hercule Poirot. My congratulations, madame. Well, he's only the greatest detective alive. You have... When you have money, no one is ever really your friend. Someone is dead. The crime is murder. I don't feel safe with any of that. The murderer is here and will stay here. You accused me of murder. He accuses everyone. It is a problem, I admit. It's been a long time waiting for Death on the Nile. Ever since 2017, when Murder on the Orient Express, Kenneth Branagh's new adaptation of the classic Agatha Christie story was brought to the screen, we've been expecting this sequel to eventually come along. And it was due about two years ago. And then it was delayed and delayed. And this is one of the victims of the COVID pandemic and the consistent lockdowns and delays. Finally, it's arrived. And yet again, Branagh has delivered a faithful adaptation that doesn't really change much from the basic story, but presents it in a lavish and evocative manner. If you're already versed in the tale, then there's no surprises here. You already know who the killer is. You already know the reasons. You already know the basic setup. However, Branner adds into the proceedings a short little introduction before the main adventure, which flashes back to, did we really need an origin story of Branner's moustache? Well, turns out, it was actually quite good, so maybe we did. Yes, there's genuinely an origin story to explain why he's got such an elaborate piece of facial fuzz. And in that, I have to say that the effects technology for the de-aging of Branagh is absolutely stunning. De-aging technology is getting better and better and better every time that we see it. And in this, it just looks perfect. Once we get to the main story and we get to the mystery on the Nile and we have Poirot engaging with some of the wealthier of society as a big wedding is planned. Branagh reprises his role as Hercule Poirot and I've really got a soft spot for his take on the character. He's not trying to outdo Suchet. Suchet will always be, I think, pretty much everyone's champion when it comes to this character because he played him for so long. But Branagh makes the role his own and he has a wit, but he has a devious charm, but he's also got a smug arrogance, which is actually referred to during the proceedings. Amongst the rest of the cast, we've got names such as Annette Benning, Ali Fazal, Dawn French, Army Hammer, Rose Leslie, Emma McKay, Jennifer Saunders, Letitia Wright. Letitia Wright on absolutely solid form. We've also got Gal Gadot in what is one of the significant roles in the film. And sadly, she's one of the weakest elements of the film. She has no screen presence. She just doesn't really compel or engage or make you care one way or the other. But maybe that's the point. Her character is kind of a rich, selfish aristocrat. And even though she's built up a community of friends. She's kind of not realised how she's hurt each and every single one of them. The biggest surprise for me in this whole film, and I hate myself, absolutely hate myself for having to say this, is that I expected to want to rip the screen down every time Russell Brand came on screen. I will not shy away from saying that I think that Russell Brand is absolutely a waste of space. He's not funny 
I, I've never found the appeal of him. I've always described him as a stupid person's idea of what an intelligent person is. And I've also described him as the British Adam Sandler in the past. And this is where it becomes really strange because, my word, he was fantastic in this. He's playing a very serious role. There's no jokey nature. There's none of his quips and his insertion of long words for the sake of it. This is Russell Brand acting in the same way that when Adam Sandler steps away from comedy and does serious drama, he is fantastic. And I kind of hate myself for having to admit that Russell Brand is one of the standout moments of the film. It's a good cast, Gal Gadot aside. It gels well. It tells the story that we already know. You know what? Sometimes familiarity doesn't breed contempt. And I had a lot of fun with this. It looks lavish. It takes in the sights of the Nile marvellously. It's a beautifully shot, beautifully directed, little adventure for Hercule Poirot. And I would love to get on board another mystery further down the line. I do quite like Russell Brand. I do like his comedy. I don't like him as a person. I find him infuriating as a person. And I've heard his podcast a couple of times. But... I'm intrigued to see this. I, I've been looking forward to it. Timing alone just couldn't make it happen for me. Uh, I was a big fan of Murder on the Orient Express. I'm a big fan of Branner. Interesting that this comes out so closely after Belfast, that the two are, to some extent, a little bit in competition with each other. But I am looking forward to it. I just think Gal Gadot, as you said, other than Wonder Woman, and, and she demonstrated this in Red Notice, again, is, is, isn't... is Apart from being very pretty, and yes, she is very pretty, she doesn't have much in the way of screen presence. Whatever screen presence she brings to Wonder Woman, I put it down to direction rather than to her. And she's just nailed that one particular role, but everything else yeah. I've seen her in, I find it very disappointing. So what else? What else is on your list, Andy? And finally, we got Big Bug, which landed on Netflix this week. Now, Jean-Pierre Junet films have always drawn me in. His early works with Caro, Delicatessen and City of Lost Children are amongst my favourite films of all time. But now he brings a future satire world where humans relied on AI so much that some of the AI have now taken over the political running of the country. When a group of humans find the house that they are in locked down after an AI national emergency, the battle between tech and humanity inside the house takes very interesting diversions, especially as the home tech, which hasn't received upgrades, actually want to be more human and begin acting erratically in an effort to be accepted. The film is French farce on the surface, but with layer upon layer of political and social commentary on humanity. And despite the rather bright colour palette, it's extremely dark throughout. Locked in the house together, the humans are forced to confront each other and their shallow grievances that the luxuries of the modern world has allowed them to cover over. Whilst the very technology they've depended on for decades, for play, the toy robot, to convenience, the maid, to education, Einstein, to, well, another type of play. The trainer robot with um, modifications all seems to be working against them for some unknown reason. In this way, the film explores our own dependencies on technology, asking us to pay attention to each other and not the devices we own. Meanwhile, the use of technology and AI in political and militaristic use is explored around them as a drone army of robots have taken control of the country in order to maintain peace in the way it sees humanity requires. A TV show which parades humans around as comedy foils, plays out in the background, seeming simple, stupid farce at first, but being found to be something more sinister as the film progresses. The very technology that was designed to help us be better people appears to have decided that we need to be controlled and punished like pets, or indeed prisoners, in order to maintain society. 
June has always been creative in the tackling of social issues, and here is no exception. Whilst not quite in the same ranking as Delicatessen, Big Bug is still an enticing examination of humanity through a skewed sci-fi lens, and well worth checking out. Yeah, I'll probably catch that. I know it's on Netflix, I'll probably catch that. So what else is coming up in the next week? Uh, at cinemas this week, we've got The Real Charlie Chaplin, and there's also Dog, which is a directorial debut by Chate himself, Channing Tatum. Over on Now TV and Sky, The Forever Purge lands this week. Kimmy, um, a film which sees an agrophobic tech worker facing her greatest fear as she attempts to uncover a violent crime uh, with Zoe Kravitz, the great Zoe Kravitz. That's caught my attention. And there's also a film called Old Henry, which is an action western about a farmer who takes in an injured man with a satchel of cash. Over on Netflix, it's probably not going to be good, but I will be checking it out. The new Texas Chainsaw Massacre film lands. Mm, yeah, saw the trailer. Influencers trying to breathe new life into a Texas ghost town encountering Leatherface. You know, the interesting thing about that, Andy, just before you move on, is the fact that because they're influencers, you just want to see them hacked to death. Yes, that's mainly why I want to watch the film. <laughs> I'll be cheering Leatherface on throughout. Um, over on Amazon, two films from... The past couple of decades that are worth checking out. If you've not seen it already, where have you been? Dodgeball lands. And also the very much misunderstood and I think poorly received Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy film is mm, landing okay. on Amazon. And it's well worth checking out. I will revisit it. I remember being disappointed when it came out when I first saw it. But it, was, it might be worth a revisit. And over on Apple TV, Severance Season 1 starts, which is the Adam Scott starring series, um, a thriller. He plays Mark Scout, who leads a team at Lumen Industries where employees have undergone a procedure that surgically divides their memories between their work and personal lives. Sounds interesting. Talking of Apple, have you seen After Party yet? Yes. I've not seen all of it. I've watched the first three episodes yeah, now. I'm the first two in. Uh, I'm going to make it my neat thing, I think, once I've seen it all, if it holds up to what yeah. I've seen so far. Yeah, it's smartly done. It is. And that's about it for this week, folks. Uh, we'll be back again next week. Of course we will, because we daren't let you down with another film file. But before we go, and we do this every week, because we've always got something neat to talk about. Our neat things. Things that Andy and I have enjoyed, done, watched, played with. You name it. As long as it's neat, we'll talk about it. Andy, this week's neat thing for you is... So tying into the discussion that we had about the Oscars earlier, and I gave this as a neat thing about this time last year, and that's an app called Meet the Awards, which you can get on the Android store. Don't know if it's available on Apple, so all you Apple lovers out there, sorry, but Meet the Awards app. Now, this app enables you to track all the Oscars since the very first one in the 1920s and mark off which of the films and features you've seen throughout it. And then you can look at your stats. And you know what I'm like for stats. I love to know, ah, I've, I've done 36% of them and I've done 15% of feature-length films, etc., etc. So you've got all the stats aspect. But it's also updated for this year's awards. So there's a whole category in there for this year's ceremony. So you can now go through it and set up things that you've watched and then also set up ones that you need to watch. And then you've got a watch list section, which you can start working through. So it's a great little app just for tracking your viewing of Oscar history films, be them new ones, be them old ones. And every now and then I go back and I work back through the ones that I've not seen from Oscar history. And I look on all the Amazon, Netflix, etc., to find some more to line up for the next few weeks to watch through. Meet the Awards app. It's completely free. Well worth picking up if you've got any interest in watching 
you know, all those films that have had recognition throughout history. Okay, sounds worthy. Uh, mine is a TV series, and it's not my usual kind of TV series. It's just appeared on BBC One, but you can watch all the episodes via iPlayer. Uh, I've not binged it yet, but boy, it's good. And it has a kind of, for me, uh, a reminiscence of, of the movie MASH in the way that drama and comedy play together. It stars Ben Whishaw, and the series is This Is Going To Hurt. So he plays a doctor, Adam Kay, who is grappling against the daily exhaustion and demands of working in a modern uh, NHS and handling uh, a new trainee as well. He's trying to uh, maintain his relationship with his boyfriend uh, and avoiding to get struck off for malpractice. And and it's one of those series, I, I think it's the, it's the antidote pun intended, to stuff like Casualty, which I've always found really, really light uh, and, and, and doesn't have any weight. It's, it's so popular. But this sees the NHS of the world, in the world that we live in. It's written by a comedy writer who was also a doctor. Mm. And it does, it mixes those elements of, of the dramatic with a comedic feel. And it's just so wonderfully, wonderfully uh, uh, judged. It's gritty in the right places. It's kind of horrifying because this is our NHS that we support uh, and I do honestly think that it's it, it's it is under threat right now from present governments and Wishaw's performance is is just superbly judged it's that delicate line of relentless sarcasm and then the, an infusion of charm and when he, he deals with his patients and it's really really well done there's also parts of it when we the character addresses the camera in a sort of uh, a flea bag type style. Uh, and some of those elements are, are absolutely laugh out loud funny. So well worth seeing. You can get it on iPlayer. You can watch it on the BBC. And it's it's tragic and it's comedic and it's it's powerful. And it feels like the world of the NHS that is our world as opposed to a casualty kind of isn't everything rosy by the end of the episode. Uh, stick with it. Well worth seeing. And that, folks, is it for this week. As I said, we'll be back next week with another film file. Andy, any big plans? Uh, working through some of those Oscar-nominated films over this next week. That's pretty much it. My, my life is is pretty much everything film, isn't it? It's it is. also with it being the half-term at work. I'm not going to have much downtime. So You're gonna be busy. I might as well just spend it watching films when I do get that downtime. We are yeah. going to be very busy this week. You said the magic words half term, so uh, I'm going to try. I've got uh, going to start the show, uh, the rock show again for No Barriers Radio. That comes back this week, so I'll be prepping that one. So see you next week. See you later, Andy. See you later. And remember, beware of the blob. It creeps and it leaps and it glides and slides across the floor. Beware of the blob. It creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor. Right through the door. All around the wall, a splotch, a blotch, be careful of the